This is the Emergency Medical Minute, sponsored by Health One. In early March, before the effects of COVID-19 swept the nation, the Emergency Medical Minute collaborated with CarePoint Health to host a brewcast on pediatric emergencies. Here is Dr. Christine Dar presenting on pediatric trauma. Okay, so I used a new template for our slides from Rocky Mountain. So these things are, I look, they're kind of off-center, but anyway, so I'm going to talk about Pete's trauma in about 10 minutes. It's really going to be probably 20. So I have my objectives and we don't need to read those. One of the things to know about for kids that come in with major trauma that typically they're going to be multi-system injury more often than not. And the reason for that is that they have a smaller body mass and it results in a greater amount of force coming per unit of body area. So typically the rule is to exclude trauma in multiple areas rather than focusing on one area. The other thing about children, especially in infants, it improves. You can think about treating kids for trauma from zero to two. They have large heads, really small bodies. Two to eight, a little bit different. So kids under age two often to align the spine and put them into the sniffing position for airway. You put a little towel underneath their shoulder about one or two inches high. Kids over age two, you don't need to do that. And sometimes older kids, you can put a towel under the head, but typically not. But it's that under age two, it's treated a little bit differently. By the time they're about 12, they're going to be more adult-like. One of the things that are the same about kids and adults is resuscitation. If you take ATLS, that's A, B, C, D, E, kids tend to have more hypoxia, apnea, and hypoventilation five times more often than they have hypovolemia and hypotension. So you really got to pay attention to their airway. And the most common reason that kids have cardiac arrest is because they stopped breathing and there was a respiratory arrest first. So that happens for trauma. So the things are the same. You, you do the A, B, C, D, E, your primary and secondary survey, whether it's an adult or a pediatric patient. The um, skeleton in kids is incompletely calcified, contains growth plates more pliable than adults. So often you may have solid organ injury underneath bones and have no fractures. So it's more common in adults to see rib fractures if you're going to have pulmonary contusions. Pulmonary contusions are very common in kids that have had blunt trauma, but you don't see rib fractures. So that's something to think about. Um, body surface area results in significant thermal energy loss and so you want to maintain normal thermia in kids who have experienced major trauma. If they lose too much heat, it increases morbidity. So keep them, after you do your surveys, keep them warm. You don't want them to get too warm, but you want them to be normal thermal. So pediatric head injury, it's the leading cause of death and disability in children and about 75% of kids that come in with major trauma will have head injuries. Fortunately, kids typically, most of them will have minor traumatic brain injuries. So those are kids that have a GCS of 14 or 15. So mild is 13 to 15, moderate 9 to 12. So on the next slide, and I have handouts in the back, in 2009 there was a Lancet study came out about treating head injuries, and it's markedly decreased the number of head CT scans that we do in kids with minor traumatic brain injury. 
It was done by PCARN, and what you know is there are a lot more adult ER patients than there are pediatric patients. And in order to get um, a significant number of patients with a certain condition in pediatrics, you need to involve multiple children's hospitals. And so PCARN is the Pediatric Emergency Care Research Network. So this was one of the first studies that came out, and I think it divides kids into under age two, and over age two it gives you criteria for when you don't need a CT scan, when you absolutely need a CT scan, and when you can observe them. And so there are a lot of times where you have a kid who looks like they're not feeling too well, but you can observe them in the ER for several hours, give them Zofran, some pain meds, some IV fluids, let them sleep, and then they wake up, they're much better, and you can avoid that radiation for them. Kids with severe GCS under age, those kids with a GCS of 9 to 12 need a CT scan and usually a neurosurgery consult. Kids under age 8, you're going to end up, they typically are not maintaining their airway, are going to need intubation. And the big thing with kids, again, is the meticulous attention to airway and breathing. You want to maintain normothermia, C-spine immobilization, and maintain their systolic blood pressure above the 5th percentile. For kids over a year of age, it's on the resuscitation cards, but the 5th percentile for blood pressure is 70 plus 2 times the age in years. The 50th percentile is 90 plus 2 times the age in years. So you want to maintain it, you know, above so that they're not hypotensive. And that's one way to figure it out. And it is on, it's on our resuscitation cards. If they have impending herniation, you're going to see the same thing you see with adults is hypertension with bradycardia, anisocoria, which unequal pupils, severe headache, coma, abnormal breathing pattern, decorticate, or decerebrate posturing. For all those things, you're going to want to ventilate and probably keep the CO2 at 30 to 35 rather than 35 to 40. Use mannitol. You can use 3% hypertonic saline. They often do that more in the ICU than we do in the ER. It works a little slower than the mannitol. So that's for, for kids. The other thing I was going to mention, you know, I think people stress really about what are the right sizes of equipment for different ages and the medication dosing. The Brazo tape, you can use that. I would suggest everybody go the next time you're on shift, if you've never used a Brazo, is take it out of the core cart, look at it, and make sure you know which end is the right end to put by the head. There's a little triangle this end up. One of the more common things is we see people put it in upside down and you get the wrong weight. The other thing, there are some apps. I use the PDSTAT app is really nice for giving the appropriate equipment and dosing for certain conditions. Um, you can use a resuscitation cart. All of our Health One computers have the eArtemis program on there. And every pediatric code cart in our system has a resuscitation book on top of the code cart. And you can't pry that out of the pharmacist's hands when we're having a resuscitation because it's got all the dosing by milliliters, by weight, and the appropriate equipment size. So those are chained to the code carts. They should not disappear from there, but they are a resource for you. This is the minor traumatic brain injury evaluation, and I have handouts. I'm not going to read over it because I've got 10 minutes, maybe if I can do it. But just understand why um, you're doing a CT scan. And what we try to encourage you in pediatric patients is not to pan scan everybody. That also goes for pediatric cervical spine injury. So pediatric cervical spine injury is rare in children. Only about 1% to 2% of kids have spine injury with severe blunt trauma. Because of the size of the head, it differentiates where the injuries actually are going to occur. So in younger kids, it typically occurs above at C3 or higher. And older kids, ages 
right? And that eight, usually five to six more like an adult patient's lower cervical spine injuries. On the right, it's an up-to-date, and that follows the nexus criteria that used for adult patients for clearing a spine clinically. You can use that comfortably for patients over age nine. When they did that study, only about 1% were kids under age nine, so it really hasn't been validated for pediatric patients under age nine. There is a new PCARN study. When I was looking at this today, I should have put it on the slide, but the um, PCARN study for pediatric patients is good for ages two to eight. The um, risk factors when all are absent, it's 98% sensitive, sensitive for no C-spine injury. And so that's if they don't have altered mental status, focal neuro findings, substantial torso injury, neck pain, torticollis, conditions predisposing to cervical injury, diving, high-risk motor vehicle crash. If they have none of those, then they have very low chance of having a cervical injury. Conditions predisposing to cervical injury, you got to think about your kids with Downs. They have very unstable necks, and they are at higher risk for cervical spine injury. There are other couple syndromes. Clipophile, they have vertebral abnormalities. Mercoy, they have kind of hyperextension. Children are also at risk for sphiora, which is spinal cord injury without radiologic abnormalities. And the reason is that their spinal ligaments are really elastic. The bones in the cervical spine can move five centimeters without a fracture. The spinal cord cannot. So you may have no fracture, but you have spinal cord injury. So those kids, they may have neurologic findings. So if you have neuro a lot of times like paresthesias, burning, and they may have a hemiparesis, those kids need an MRI to decide if they've got skiwara, and then you need a neurosurgery consult. They also can present with spinal shock and increased pain, so sometimes you'll see that. It's the same in kids, yeah. So we really haven't been doing the steroids. This is a nice guideline, and I don't know, Nate, if you're going to send this out or anything, but the, I can email it to anybody who wants it. This is from Hasbro Children's. It's a nice thing, the um, cervical spine imaging. So the trend in adult patients is to do, if you're doing a head CT, to do a cervical spine CT scan. That is not the case in pediatric patients. Cervical spine CT scans have 150 times more radiation than plain films. It markedly increases the risk of thyroid cancer as an adult for if you're doing a cervical spine CT scan. So our initial imaging for kids is two views under age 5, 5 to 13, three views, 14, three views, or you could do a CT if they're over 14. We don't worry as much about that. If you have a kid with GCSs under nine, they typically will need a cervical spine. If you're doing a head CT for younger kids, it's most important just to get that one, two, three. That's most likely where the injury is going to be. And then they recommend one level above and one level below. They say CTs of an entire cervical spine in children zero to 13 is inappropriate. It's inappropriate in most cases. On occasion, if you have a kid who's severely is comatose, you're going to end up doing that because they can't give you a clue as to where the injury is. The pediatric blunt abdominal trauma, about 8% of injuries involve the chest. About 75% of these kids will also have the head injury. Mm -hmm. I Yeah, so one thing, for any exam in a child under age three, you're going to get a better exam if they're allowed to sit on their parent's lap. But, you know, if you're worried about a C-spine injury, 
they're often not going to be able to do that. The thing you're looking for is if they're moving all extremities. And then a lot of times you get them to calm down eventually. If they're moving all extremities, the likelihood is unlikely. And you check her reflexes, and that's what you, you look for, basically. And a big thing in kids with head injury is looking how they interact with their parents. You know, if they're inconsolable, but when they're with their parents, it makes them look a lot better. You can say, oh, they're doing okay. So it's harder in pre-verbal kids. Older kids should be able to tell you. There is a trick for hand injuries, and it's on one of my later slides. If you uh, have a laceration on the hand and they can't tell you about sensation, if you put their hand in water, warm water, the fingers should prune after a while, and if they don't prune, that nerve has been injured. You just have to wait a while, though, because they have to be in that water for a while then, before their fingers prune. But that's a good way to turn if, uh, tell if they have a median ulnar or radial nerve injury. All right, so blunt injury accounts for about 90% of all major pediatric trauma. So PCARN also did another study not yet validated in 2013. They had 12,044 children, median age of 11.1. If kids had abdominal wall bruising, they were 232 times more likely to have intra-abdominal injury. So bruising in kids, if you get a shoulder bruise or a lap belt bruise, um, you've got to worry much more about abdominal trauma in those kids. Things that they look for, if they have a GCS equal to or over 14, no evidence of abdominal wall trauma, no abdominal tenderness, no pain, no vomiting, no thoracic wall trauma, no decreased breast sounds, and then they had only a 0.1% chance of having intra-abdominal injury. I do have to say one thing. I had a patient at Swedish some years ago. It was a two-year-old had fallen off a slide from a height of about seven feet. Normal vital signs, playing. But every once in a while, he's grunting. He's like... <sighs> so grunting in pediatric patients is either a sign of pneumonia or abdominal pain. We did a CT scan, and he had a splenic laceration. So that's a kind of a, a small, subtle finding. So you just got to watch them. You know, a lot of times kids... Um, the exam is from a distance, and you get a better exam, one, if they're comfortable, and if you're not exactly touching them, it can tell you a lot more about what's going on. So typically, if fast scan's available, you can do that, but most of these kids, if you're worried about that you're going to get an abdomen pelvis CT scan. If they have any bleeds, the dosing for fluids in kids, and we usually, um, isotonic fluids is 20 mils per kilo. If they're hypotensive, you give three boluses. If that doesn't work, you want to be make sure you've got blood coming and that's 10 mils per kilo. And those kids, if they're not, those kids are gonna end up going to the OR. Pediatric orthopedic injury. So there's a couple of things. I can't stress enough that to manage pain in pediatric patients, it's often undertreated. We have a nice tool is intranasal fentanyl. Um, it works if you can't get an IV, then you don't have to get an IV in, you get a better exam. Just go ahead and use that. We have the atomizer in all our ERs. And I'm a big fan of ibuprofen if it's just a regular, you know, little fracture. I don't um, often give narcotics for other than the fentanyl when it's a kid who's really in distress. Kids have growth plates, so they have Salter-Harris fractures, which you don't see in adult patients. And so the Salter-1 is the one you often can't see on x-ray. And if you have a kid who, often it's a kid who had a fell in their hand and they've got some wrist pain over where the growth plate would be, go ahead and splint them and just have them follow up with ortho for follow-up with their pediatrician. And then A is above the epiphysis, which is type 2. Type 3 is below the epiphysis. Type fours through everything, and the crush injuries are actually highest risk for growth abnormalities. 
And then supracondylar fractures are quite common. They're 60% of elbow fractures, and they're high risk for neurovascular complications. And so we prefer pediatric orthopedics take care of them. So there are three types. If you have type 1, they're non-displaced. You splint them. You can send them to ortho. You don't have to call anybody. The um, type 2, you call ortho, see what they want to do. Type 3, they're going to the OR that day, typically. 5% are associated with forearm fractures. If you've got a radius fracture with a supracondylar, they're at high risk for compartment syndrome. And that's usually that you get some neurologic deficits or increased pain out of proportion to, to what the injury is. Radial head subluxation, nurse maid's elbow. So the most important thing is if there's elbow swelling, it's not a nurse maid's elbow. So don't try and reduce an elbow that's got any swelling. And you know, a lot of times you don't get a great history. They were playing with their siblings. You don't get a history of them being pulled, but they typically come in, no elbow swelling, holding their arm about 120 degrees, crying won't let you move it. I will often ask the parents if it's okay if I just try it, and often it's better. If you can't get it, you, what you do is you supinate and flex. If that doesn't work, you can pronate. Flex. Sometimes you can't get it, and then I send them for x-ray after that. If the radiology check is good and they do a true lateral of the elbow, it'll reduce an x-ray. And if that still doesn't work, you can splint them, and by the time they go see their pediatrician or orthopedist in three days, it's better. So those are the big things, orthopedic consult, I think. The other thing for lower extremity injuries, just have them bear weight. From six months on, you try and put them down, and they will lift that leg if it's hurting. So that nose tells you you know, that they've got a fracture going on in the lower extremity. So that's, you know, have them stand. I had a kid was cleared by the trauma surgeon to go home. So I did my exam. I asked him to stand. He couldn't stand. He had a tibia fracture. So I was like, how'd you pick that up? I said, I just asked him to stand up. <laughs> it's like, it's like, work. Yeah. And then on the bottom here, I don't know how you can see it. There's um, That's a buckle handle fracture, and that's seen with abuse. And that's usually a pulling, twisting kind of injury. It's one of the fractures, and also spiral fractures, multiple fractures. You think about child maltreatment. So homicide, unfortunately, is the most common cause of injury death in the first year of life. So for kids with abuse, suspicions, I have some pictures that the young girl has a slap mark on her face. Loop marks on the back, they're from either a belt or electric cord. You have a burn center, it's Swedish. Typical burn for injury, someone will hold a child in hot water on a bathtub. The bathtub's cold, so that part doesn't get burned, and you have like a safe donut area, and the rest of the leg and that around is burned. Or these glove and stocking injuries are typical of abuse. They expect abuse when they haven't come in, the history doesn't match the physical. What happened doesn't measure their developmental age. Like a two-month-old rolled off the diaper chain, they don't roll it two months, so they didn't roll off the table. Um, you get a lot of injuries to the genital area because a lot of it's um, based around toilet training. And fractures of lung bones in children under three is common. And then you have bite marks, cigarette burns, skull and rib fractures under 24 months. If you have any suspicious fractures, um, with if you suspect child maltreatment, most important thing, and a lot of times it is one thing to understand, it is not our job in the emergency department to decide if a child has been abused or not. We are required by law to report that to Child Protective Services if we have a suspicion, but that's, you know, not so... For me, it's the best thing to do is let the parents know your child has this injury, and it's something that we see sometimes when a child has had um, physical abuse. So I'm obligated by law to call Child Protective Services. And so you just have to deliver that message in a non-judgmental way and let them know that you're doing that. 
and it's most important that you make sure that child is safe to go wherever they're going. And it can be home with another relative. If they can't find, if CPS can't find anybody, they'll put them in foster care for a short time. So that's important. Skeletal surveys should be done if you're suspicious about child maltreatment under 24 months of age, and also with kids who are developmentally delayed and can't tell you the story of what happened. I almost had that on the end. I didn't want to end with that slide. So, <laughs> so lacerations, nail bed injuries. So a couple things is, you know, letting the younger children especially, letting them sit on the lap. Kids are often anxious if they think they need stitches. Um, one thing I do if you have a posterior scalp laceration, I usually have the kids hug the parents and you do like a bear hug and it's easy kind of then to access that scalp and it's comfortable and they're, you know, not crying. We use LET for anesthesia. It works best on the face and the scalp, but I, I tell you, I use it on extremities and sometimes it works on extremities and sometimes it doesn't, but then it, it makes it easier to inject it. Um, distraction, some parents are really good at it, and others, they're watching you do your procedure. So you have to tell them, this is what you could do for your child to make them feel more comfortable. So it's um, to kind of direct them a little bit about what to do. You can use intranasal Versed or um, oral Versed for sedation. Um, if it's a complex laceration or like a lip, a lot of times you may need to sedate them with ketamine. Nail bed repairs, I wanted to mention, because there's some new studies. There was a study in 2013, Pease Emergency Care, that you can use um, glue instead of sutures to suture nail bed. And I find that's a lot easier. I don't know how many of you have done a nail bed repair on a one-year-old. It's challenging. Those nails are so thin, and to try and get two holes through there and suture it on, it, I've done it, but it takes a while. Anyways, you do a ditch block, have them soak in normal saline. You still use a tourniquet so there's not a lot of bleeding. Pull off the nail, clean it betadine saline and then you repair the laceration of the nail bed with some glue and then you have to trim your nail so it fits make sure you don't glue the epinichium closed because you're going to have to put your nail in there under there for a splint and then you can glue it on the nail folds on the side to keep it in put zero form and, and wrap it up it's a lot less traumatic and faster than suturing those send those to ortho yeah and laurel benson does hand surgery in kids so you can call someone to her so this is the last slide so you know kids are always falling off of everything and so parents will always say you know oh they did this and now they're not walking well a lot of times sometimes it's not related to trauma at all and so the picture on the top is a foot with petechiae and i had a patient like this too um four-year-old they said oh i think he sprained his ankle well, four-year-olds don't really sprain their ankles Toddlers tend to break bones more than they, they won't get sprains typically, and you can get a toddler's fracture is real common, but he had ankle swelling. And so I, I look, and then I see petechiae, and I said, you know, he's got this rash. She said, oh, yeah, he's had this rash for a few days. She didn't mention that. So it was, um, he had um, Hanak-Schoenlein-Purpura, which is a vasculitis you see in kids um, associated often with a viral illness. We're, we've had it for a long time. We're still not absolutely sure what causes it. So that's one thing to be aware of. Um, JRA can present, typically um, the single joint ones can present like trauma. And then something we see fairly often in three to eight year olds is toxic or transient synovitis, also unknown exactly what causes it, but it's, they're usually well appearing, afebrile or low grade temp, but you wanna rule out a septic hip or a septic knee. Um, those are surgical em emergencies. So septic joints are surgical emergencies. You don't want to miss them. They need to go out to the OR for aspiration and joint cleanout. 
get, if you don't get it, they can have long-term problems with walking. So you want to get a CBC, SED rate, CRP. This is the one, one of the few instances where you get a SED rate still. And then you can ultrasound the hip or the joint you're looking at for extra fluid. And see. And then you call ortho, and they'll tell you if they're taking the O or not. We just had one recently. Um, osteomyelitis can present as trauma. They're going to have fever, some pain in an extremity or somewhere. Sometimes it's associated with previous trauma, like a splinter or something was there. Kids with sickle cell often get osteomyelitis. And then this is kind of halfway between medical and trauma, but the slip capital femoral epiphysis, skiffy, and teenagers often are obese, but not always, uh, may have some history, some minor trauma, um, and that's the x-ray on the bottom. So they have their femoral epiphysis really slides off the, the cap of the bone. So they get hip x-rays, and they often have to be, they're immobilized, and they end up getting pinned often. And I think that's it. We are on a quest to provide the world with free medical education. Please help us out by rating us on iTunes, following us on social media, and subscribing to our newsletter at emergencymedicalminute.com.